0: Hello all, warmest welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, coming to you from a locked down North Wales spare bedroom. I'm Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, thanking all of you guys for joining me here today and I'm hoping that through these crazy times that the episode finds all of you safe and well. If you stir crazy, stuck in the house, I know it really does suck, but it's what we all need to do right now, isn't it, eh? even if you get so bored that you're tempted to phone someone in India to see if they've been involved in an accident lately. Get those jobs done that you've been putting off forever, jump on your box sets, devour your podcasts, and overall, just be safe guys and hang in there. Lots of thanks going out here from me this week. Firstly, if you're in the show's Facebook discussion group, then you may have noticed I started a show fundraiser for Macmillan Cancer Support. It's a cause that's very close to my heart, and it's sadly something that touches pretty much all of us at some point, doesn't it? Now, your donations have been very, very generous so far, guys. So, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for all of that. This month's Patreon fund of the show has gone entirely between a number of local charities, also who are affected by the current coronavirus. And whilst we're discussing Patreon, this month's bonus episode will also be going out pretty soon. With thanks and shout outs this week going to both returning and new supporters Richard Lancet, Amanda Farley, Donna Barnard, Barb Hardwick, Sasha Barker, Laurel, Jennifer, Gina Judd, Caroline Collins, hattie forkin tammy church kathleen keeler and claire Mapletoft. thank you so much folks it's so very much appreciated of you and i hope that you find the bonus episodes well the ones that haven't been shared as corona bonuses anyway i hope that you find them interesting now i know i've shared a few of these for all in recent weeks you've got to help out doing what you can haven't you because we are all cogs after all but you'll still find a good 15 full-length bonus episodes there should you wish to support the show with a new one coming each month. Details can be found by looking up the show on the Patreon site or by using the ever-present link in the episode show notes which is always there each week. And thanks very much also for the feedback that I've received for the previous episode of the show. Part 1 in this series multi-arc, The Beast of the Green Chain. I was surprised that it's about equal feedback between it being a familiar case and an unfamiliar one, because I thought most listeners would know of the case. But anyway, let's not piss about and let me waffle on any further, we shall dive right into the next part of the tale. So I chose this particular case for the series arc, as it's one that's always stuck well in my mind. It's a complex disturbing tale and one that as as I say may be familiar to many and unheard of to others. Last episode then which if you haven't heard it yet then I do recommend you go and listen first because this episode will make so much more sense if you do. But a short recap we covered a particularly nasty series of rapes and attempted rapes that took place in the South London area from the late 80s to the early 1990s along a stretch of interconnected pathways between open areas that comprises what is known as the Green Chain Walk. The attacks, four that could be forensically linked to the same offender, increased in violence with each and as well as in frequency, following a two and a half year gap between the first and the remaining three that we looked at. There could have been countless more and indeed, police believe the true number of offences the individual is responsible for could well be into double, even triple figures. Despite an intensive investigation, codenamed Operation Eccleston, the rapist wasn't caught for a number of years after his last known attack. And as I said last episode, these attacks were bad enough, but the individual went on to commit far, far worse atrocities than these, as we shall begin to hear about this week. The episode contains descriptions of crimes and events, including offences against a child, that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion as always whilst you're listening folks. As ever, details contained within are not recounted merely to sensationalise or shock, but I believe it's important to personify those concerned as much as possible, and so you understand fully the absolute carnage, and I stress, no other word will suffice, that this individual did. Now I titled the episode for a reason, I think it's most fitting, and see if following listening to the tale, you can see why I chose it. With this in mind... Please join the true crime enthusiast for part two of the maniac story arc, When the Devil Walked in Plumstead. I find it best to start here with a quote from a now long-retired former Metropolitan Police Officer, retired Detective Chief Superintendent Mickey Banks. As I walked through the door there was people inside the house, people who'd first gone to the scene. I walked through to the dining room and there was this body there, this body that had been displayed and it was the most horrendous scene I had ever seen in 32 and a half years police service. It was awful. It was as though a post-mortem had been conducted upon this poor young girl. It was absolutely horrendous. The only child of Douglas and Margaret Bissett Samantha Bissett was born to them in Dundee on the 25th of February 1967. A doted on, comfortable and happy child, from her earliest steps she showed a fierce independence, academic promise and an artistic flair, an inherit from her father, who was himself talented as a freelance watercolour artist and illustrator. This comfortable existence, living firstly in London where the family had moved down to, and then Hemel Hempstead, sadly came to an end when samantha was 14 in 1981 when douglas bissett passed away from cancer following his death samantha and her mother moved back up to margaret's native dundee where samantha at the beginning of what a difficult teen years took the loss of her father and the move to scotland very hard struggling in a new school Her well-spoken, different accent, and the difficulty she had in penetrating the already well-established social groups being the new girl, marked her out as a target for bullying, and she failed to settle at all at the new school, eventually leaving without any academic qualifications. Samantha's unhappiness also strained her relationship with her mother, to the point where she virtually lived with her maternal grandmother, who became her closest friend and confidant. Relations at home were to thaw somewhat in 1983 when Margaret met a wealthy building contractor named Jack Morrison who Samantha got on well with and grew close to and who became her stepfather in 1985. But despite the marriage and Jack welcoming her into the Morrison's new home settling Samantha somewhat, a return to studying wasn't to be on the cards for the headstrong girl and desperate for acceptance and some friends instead began mixing with youngsters who were into the Dundee drug scene. This then became Samantha's life for a number of years. With drugs, she became unmanageable at home, left the household and Scotland, and headed back down to the south coast of the UK, adopting a new age traveller lifestyle. It was off around the country from festival to festival, with this swampy and that for a number of years, living a hand-to-mouth lifestyle in old converted buses, or on communes, Exactly where she was over this period at any given time was difficult to pinpoint. She would occasionally, usually totally out of the blue, gravitate back to Dundee to visit Margaret and Jack, who would always encourage her to stay on these visits. But as time progressed, these visits became more and more sporadic because Samantha began more and more using harder drugs. She again moved around various groups within the south of England, spent some time on a semi-permanent commune in mid Wales before in 1986 attempting to make a fresh start. The appeal of tie-dyed clothes and mung beans and bloody joss sticks and all that was wearing a bit thin by the time she was 19 and so Samantha decided to break away from it all applying for and obtaining a job in a Salisbury nursing home. It was while she was working here that Samantha met someone who was to become a lifelong friend of hers, a woman named Anne Hesketh, whose family Samantha eventually moved in with and acted as nanny towards Anne's children to cover her bed and board. But by 1987, the free-spirited Samantha had itchy feet once again and returned to the travelling community, which sadly meant for Samantha a return to the lure of drugs. By the start of 1988 she had an acute dependency and as such couldn't ideally stay back with the Heskeths but they didn't turn their back on her and instead successfully persuaded Samantha to attend drug counselling and rehabilitation. It was whilst on this rehabilitation course in Southampton that Samantha met a social worker named Andrew McNeil, with whom she developed a relationship with. Now the relationship rapidly became serious enough for the two to move into a flat together in Woolwich Road in South London, but soon faltered when in the autumn of that year Samantha relapsed and began using hard drugs once again. They split as a result, Andrew McNeil returned to his family in the New Forest and Samantha discovered that she was pregnant. Now this news was like a bolt of lightning, the exact wake-up call that Samantha needed. Upon learning she was pregnant she informed Andrew McNeil, but the news didn't bring them back together and there's nothing to suggest that the two ever even saw each other again. The headstrong Samantha immediately began turning her life around. From that day she swore off drugs and indeed was never to revert to using them again. She moved into a day house, a hostel for single and expectant mothers in Shooters Hill in Woolwich and around this time also met and became friends with a man named Conrad Ellum or Cozy as he was more commonly known, who went on to become Samantha's steady boyfriend. Jasmine Jemima Bissett came into the world on the 20th of July 1989 at Greenwich District Hospital and from the very second she was placed into Samantha's arms she became a whole world. The child was loved beyond. Samantha managed to persuade the local council to allocate her and Jasmine a property, a small one-bedroom basement flat at number 1A Heathfield Terrace in Plumstead, only a stone's throw across the busy King's Highway Road from the open expanse of somewhere we visited last episode on the show, Winds Common. Promising to herself and her brand-new baby daughter that she would devote the rest of her life to her well-being and to doing the best she could for her, Samantha and Jasmine, or JJ as she became to be affectionately known, moved into here just a month later on the 21st of August 1989. The birth of Jasmine also steadied the turbulent relationship between Samantha and her mother and stepfather, and following an established pattern of regular telephone calls between them, Margaret and Jack came down to visit their daughter and meet their granddaughter, who they fell in love with instantly. The little girl was a bright, happy child and a ray of sunshine to all who met her, and it was apparent to everyone who met the pair of them the love that Samantha had for her daughter. Now there are countless images available through searches of Samantha and Jasmine doing all sorts of things together. Home videos of them messing about and playing games at home, on trips to the seaside, posing in the park, the list goes on, it's endless, and throughout all, the bond that they have is just apparent, it just shines through. Why Samantha and Jasmine's names are not as familiar as some others, just makes me shake my head, I just don't understand it at all, but I'm hoping that following the episode though, they become names that you never forget. Samantha took to being a mum instantly and the child wanted for nothing. Samantha would even herself often go without just to provide Jasmine with the best that she could in what must have been difficult circumstances because being a single parent is challenging enough but a single parent living in London can't have been easy at all I would imagine. They did have cosy although because the flat was so small he didn't live permanently with them and he and Jasmine closely bonded, so much so that he was even reportedly the first person Jasmine ever did a stick drawing of. Samantha and Cozy would share childcare duties, and he became a father figure to Jasmine, as well as a steady and doting boyfriend to Samantha. But whilst it's true that they did have a sexual relationship, they shared care for Jasmine, and he stayed over at Samantha's flat a few nights each week, there were suggestions that perhaps Cozy was somewhat more invested in their relationship than Samantha was. As Jasmine started nursery, a decent highly recommended one named Abbey Wood, and Samantha got more and more settled into South London life, she began thinking of how she could attain and afford that better lifestyle for Jasmine, and began to research a private education for her daughter. To this extent, unbeknown to Cozy, Samantha decided and saved up to have a portfolio of professional modelling photographs taken. She was tall, slim, blonde and attractive, and considered that she may be able to earn money for this better life for her daughter by modelling. But despite the portfolio being sent out, the modelling career was never to materialise, and so there are suggestions that, always with the best for Jasmine as the golden thread running through any idea that she had, Samantha considered other money-making schemes and ideas. By the time Jasmine was approaching leaving nursery to start full-time school, Samantha had begun to advertise in local newspaper classified adverts friendship columns. An example of one of these from the beginning of 1993 was taken from the local Greenwich and Elton Mercury newspaper and reads as follows. Single mother, 27, needs friends. I'm an honest, reliable, ex-hippie who smokes roll-ups and doesn't eat meat. Whether Samantha was lonely and through this advert was simply after friends, as it sounds, can't be ascertained. By all accounts, although Samantha was considered a pleasant and likeable woman, she did tend to keep herself to herself, and the advert does sound innocent enough indeed, doesn't it? But by the beginning of September 1993, These adverts had taken a definite turn, shall we say. They'd also been placed more mainstream, as exampled in one that appeared in the personal columns of the London Weekly Advertiser that was dated the 8th to the 14th of September, which read as follows. Upmarket tall erotic blonde escort, and aching to hear from you generous men. Just tell me what you want, all letters answered. Yet another of these adverts, in a contact magazine, read Young, sexy, long-legged blonde requires a nice gentleman with spare cash to pay small child school fees in return for regular, discreet, no-strings-fun liaisons. Cannot accommodate. Very genuine. Samantha was looking for the financial security that she thought cosy, who although devoted, hard-working and there for him, just would never be able to provide for them, as he was constantly moving between a string of menial jobs. There was no doubting that he loved them both, and although she obviously cared very much for him, he never really seemed to be Samantha's idea of a happy ever after. Now that's not me trying to sound deliberately unfair, or pouring scorn on a relationship that I, or indeed none of us, could even have ever known the complexities of, could we? But even though he would stay there several times a week as a partner, Samantha was clearly advertising as an escort to get that better future for Jasmine the only way that she could think to, a way that would fit around Jasmine's childcare. She was certainly known to have corresponded with a number of men who replied to these and other adverts that she'd placed, even meeting up with some of them, although whether this was taken any further is not known and requires no speculation really. You may think this was extreme, but it was the exact kind of thing Samantha would do. She hated being dependent upon anyone, and it's just another example of the lengths that she was willing to go to for her daughter. Even though her mother and stepfather were wealthy and constantly offered financial help to her, Samantha had reservations about this and would refuse, having pride and principle and wanting to make the best for Jasmine through her own efforts. The one allowance she had allowed from her mother was the acceptance of the generous gift of £1,000 for her, Jasmine and Cozy to have a holiday in the Gambia on the second week of November. Overcoming her pride and reluctance to accept handouts, Samantha had decided that the trip would be of benefit to Jasmine. After all, it was to be her first holiday. And what a holiday, eh? That's pretty good, isn't it? A neighbor of mine goes to the Gambia quite often, and every time I see him when he's come back, he often says that he would live there quite happily. He absolutely loves it. so the trip pleased everyone. Samantha, Jasmine, and Cozy were excited with the prospect of traveling and were looking forward to it, and also in Mother and Jack, who always sensed an air of loneliness and worrying about her finances from Samantha and thought it would be just the ticket to cheer her up. Everybody was happy. Sadly, Margaret and Jack Morrison were never to see Samantha or Jasmine ever again. Wednesday the 3rd of November 1993 was a grim autumn day, and after first thing in the morning taking Jasmine to Abbey Wood Preschool, in the London district of the same name, Samantha spent most of the day back in her flat, cleaning up and catching up with herself in the few hours downtime that she had. Before she knew it, it was almost 3pm and time for Samantha to set off for the 25-minute walk from the flat in Heathfield Terrace to Jasmine's nursery on Abbey Woods, Dahlia Road. Knowing that a day at nursery always left Jasmine played out and proper knackered, on days when she was in, Samantha would habitually book a taxi to pick the pair up from when she collected Jasmine at the nursery at 3.30pm and to bring them home. After booking a taxi, always using the same local company, ABC Cabs, Samantha set off and collected Jasmine as normal. The journey home in a cab took less than 10 minutes, and at 3.40pm, the taxi pulled off King's Highway Road and parked up outside the stone steps leading down to 1A Heathfield Terrace. Samantha paid her £3 fare, and then helping Jasmine out of the cab, issued thanks to the driver, and shut the door. He watched the Samantha grasp Jasmine's hand and helped her down the steep flight of steps before turning the car around and driving away. That cab driver was the last person to see Samantha and Jasmine before the devil came walking in Plumstead that evening. When they'd been dropped off by the taxi driver, what happened following this can only be surmised but there's no reason to suggest it was anything other than routine for them. Jasmine would be straight home in front of the television, while Samantha began to prepare the pair's evening meal. Usually a frugal affair if it was just the two of them, such as beans or spaghetti hoops on toast. Which, be it frugal or not actually, sometimes is just what you want for your tea, isn't it? It certainly is for me anyway. Sometimes coming from work I think, oh, I just want sausage and beans on toast or something. If Cozy was with them, or he was collecting jasmine, the meal would be a different, yet still pretty simple affair. However, that evening, he was working a night shift at the plastics factory where he worked on the nearby Nathan Way industrial estate. He had stayed with the pair the previous evening, and had late that morning told Samantha that as he was that afternoon attending his local GP for vaccinations in preparation for their trip to the Gambia, he'd spend the day before his night shift staying at his father's house in nearby Sidcup and that he would see them both the following day, an important one as they were preparing to look at possible schools for Jasmine to attend. Following tea then, it was a bath for Jasmine and then Samantha prepared her for bed in a long-sleeved red top and yellow shorts. She then added Jasmine's latest drawing to the montage of them that lined the walls of the flat and both settled down to watch television, Samantha occasionally glancing out into the darkness that she could see through the balcony door. Having no curtains, there was a rattan-type blind that would usually afford privacy, but it had broken some time before, and now useless, was fixed in the up position. As theirs was a basement flat however, the view from the balcony which itself was less than four feet above the grassed area to the rear of Heathfield Terrace, just looked out onto trees anyway. So Samantha wasn't too concerned about the view from the balcony, nor for people who could potentially see in, unabashed in her own home. She was not a security-conscious person either, rarely bothering to secure the balcony door or windows, or even to use the double Yale lock on the flat door. The television was then turned off and Samantha began to read to Jasmine. Having started reading classic works of literature to her daughter when she was a very young age, the current book they were enjoying was Arthur Ransom's Swallows and Amazons, which after a short chapter, at 7pm Samantha placed Jasmine into a cot and lay on the made-up mattress beside it, the routine to get Jasmine to sleep that had been developed over time. Shortly afterwards Jasmine was sleeping soundly and Samantha closed the door and went back to the living room. Now as we mentioned before, Samantha had placed a number of advertisements in the local newspaper classified adverts and may possibly have been expecting a telephone call in response from one of these that evening. She'd even met with a couple of men who'd replied, though in what aspect is not known, but no one was to ring. Later analysis of her telephone records showed that early that evening, Samantha did receive a telephone call from her mother, and at 8.47pm, Samantha called a horoscope line, belief in her stars, one aspect of the New Age mysticism that she'd retained. A neighbour upstairs later heard the sound of washing up clattering in the kitchen sink at about 11pm, and then in the early hours of the Thursday morning, Another neighbour heard the sound of two male voices apparently arguing in the vicinity of the flat, saying something like, leave it, I said leave it. There are also reports that a neighbour in the nearby cul-de-sac of Revel Rise was woken by the sound of screams or a commotion in the early hours, which when she looked from the window could see the lights on at 1A Heathfield Terrace, the direction of where the noise had come from. When Cozy had finished work the following morning, at 7am he headed to the flat as he usually would do, but was surprised when he tried his key to the front door of 1A and it wouldn't open. The door was deadlocked, something which Samantha never did. Peering through the letterbox, he could see clothing strewn along the hallway leading from the door, and a dark pool of something that he couldn't identify on the carpet near the front door. Using his deadlock key, he managed to get the door open. It was years later to describe that morning as follows. The first thing I saw was a huge stain on the carpet. I couldn't tell what it was, so I thought Jasmine had knocked paint over. I went into the kitchen to find something to clean it up with and found the floor was covered in Sam's clothes. I thought there'd been a burglary or something. Somewhere along the line, I twigged that there was something wrong. I walked into the front room and I saw Sam. It was just this pile of clothes and blankets with her arms and legs sticking out. I couldn't really see much, but I remember thinking, this is awful. It took me a while to realise what had happened. I was in shock. I didn't lift the clothes off. I knew she was dead. I went to phone the police and then it hit me that I hadn't seen Jasmine. What about Jasmine? I looked in the bedroom and I could see that she was in her bed, almost completely covered with a duvet pulled over her, but I could tell that she wasn't breathing. I was in shock, totally numb, and I hadn't even seen what had been done to them. I just stood outside and chain smoked until the police arrived. I couldn't really understand it all. I don't know how you're supposed to react to something like that. The first police officer to arrive on the scene was Detective Constable Graham Cook from Plumstead CID who met a very shaken and agitated Cozy at the entrance to the flat where he told him what he'd discovered After a brief look at the scene where DC Cook confirmed that both Samantha and Jasmine were indeed dead the murder team were contacted and as a matter of course Cozy was himself then arrested on suspicion of murder and taken to Plumstead Police Station. A murder investigation was immediately launched, spearheaded by Detective Superintendent Mickey Banks, and a standard investigation procedure got underway the in depth look at Samantha's life to discover who the victim was, coupled with house to house inquiries in the areas of Heathfield Terrace and neighbouring bassant Road and Revel Rise. At the same time, a forensic team moved into 1A Heathfield Terrace. Such was the scene there in that small flat. It was the early hours of Friday the 5th of November that the forensic team finally moved out of there and the flat was sealed as a crime scene. The bodies of Samantha and Jasmine had been removed the previous day to Greenwich Mortuary where they lay in state awaiting identification from Samantha's next of kin, her mother Margaret. Margaret and Jack flew down from Dundee on the Friday afternoon where they were hosted in a hotel before having to make the heartbreaking task of the following morning formally identifying their only daughter and granddaughter in Greenwich Mortuary. Imagine that, eh? You don't even want to think about that, do you? At 5pm on the Thursday evening, however, Detective Superintendent Banks had held a team briefing at Thamesmead Police Station for the entire squad of 25 detectives who had been assigned to investigate the double murder because make no mistake, there was no question that it was anything but that. One of the sources of information I've used while researching the story arc is a book written by one of the investigators who was part of that team, now retired former Detective Sergeant Alan Jackerman. Now the book, it's a fascinating one and it's highly recommended describes how Banks produced a video recording taken at the scene by a senior crime officer which he proceeded to play for the team under strict instruction to watch without comment Now the following contains a disturbing description of crimes and events including offences committed against a child As ever guys, this is not a sensationalise but I want you to fully appreciate the horror of what this offender did. The video displayed the front door to 1A Heathfield Terrace before going inside and panning along the hallway, taking in washing that was still hanging on radiators, clothes and bedding strewn across the hall floor, before focusing on a large pool of blood on the hall carpet between the kitchen and the front door. Clearly visible blood smears led away from this pool into the living room of the flat. The camera then pans to the right and heads into the kitchen, the floor of which was strewn with items of clothing that had been pulled out of the airing cupboard, where Samantha kept them. Various objects within the kitchen itself are focused upon, an open microwave door, three used coffee cups on the side unit, and a knife block with one of the knives missing from it, and another placed in its slot, but back to front. Apart from this and the usual kitchen clutter, there was no other sign of disturbance, bar thin blood spatter's down one of the cupboard doors near to the sink. Heading back out of the kitchen, the camera then moves across the hall and into the room on the left of the hallway as one would enter the living room. Various sources used for research describe this room, indeed described the flat in general as being cluttered but with a sense of order, like many of our places I'm sure, it definitely like mine anyway. The recording zooms in first on the door to the balcony in the front room, which isn't visible due to the broken rattan blind having been dropped, covering the balcony door and window completely. The entire room is taken in, showing a room that although clean, required cosmetic touches such as painting and decorating. What's substituted for decorating is the abundance of drawings and paintings of scenes and activities that Jasmine had produced, absolute scores of them that adorned the walls, the doors, almost every available surface of the flat, and her latest picture, produced just the day before, had been added to a wall in a spot chosen by herself the previous evening things that at a complete juxtaposition with what else was in the room. The camera then pans down to take in the living room sofa, on which a solitary bloodstain stood out and a large cushion from the sofa had been taken and placed onto the floor. The recording then dwells upon the body of Samantha Bissett lying in front of the gas fire, partially clothed in a slashed-through bra, dark blue socks and bathrobe, posed upon the cushion no other word will suffice there before her head and body had been covered with the bathrobe and assorted towels and clothing that had been taken from the kitchen cupboard layer by layer of these were removed until the recording could capture the horrific injuries to samantha before then heading back out of the living room and into the only bedroom of the flat that samantha and jasmine shared as the camera entered the bedroom it took in the scene floral patterned wallpaper an abundance of toys covering nearly all surfaces and stacked in corners and a cot which at right angles underneath lay a mattress with a duvet thrown back on it barely visible underneath the bedclothes of the cot was the head of jasmine lying on her front facing towards the wall Now I've tried to give a descriptive but of course generalised account of the scene based upon sources that I used for research but once I detail the findings from the post-mortem it's going to make you shudder and be thankful that it is generalised because it truly is the stuff of nightmares. It's heartbreaking. So horrendous a scene was it that the crime scene photographer Carol England an experienced senior crime officer collapsed at the scene because of what she saw and required hospitalization. She was so disturbed by the bisic crime scene that there are conflicting reports upon her well-being following this. Some reports claim she was off for two years with stress, others claim that she never did return to work. Now I'd be inclined to believe the latter personally, and perhaps the details of the not one but three post-mortems that were required will go some way to explain him why. Once again, the following contains disturbing descriptions of crimes and events. The first post-mortem conducted by Home Office Pathologist Dr Ian Hill found that Samantha had been killed with multiple stab wounds Thought to be at least eight initial blows in total to the neck, head, and chest, and from the use of two knives judged to be thinly bladed weapons measuring a centimeter and two point five centimeters in width, respectively, one of these blows had cut her face and blackened her eye, another had severed a carotid artery, and another her spinal cord four-year-old jasmine had been suffocated with a pillow. And if it remained just that, it would be carnage enough, wouldn't it? I mean, bloody hell, evil, almost beyond description that, isn't it? A mother and a four-year-old daughter. But it gets worse. While Samantha lay dead or dying in the hallway, the killer then made his way into the bedroom where Jasmine was asleep. She was woken up, was sexually assaulted and then smothered. At some point whilst the killer was there in the flat and it was estimated to be more than an hour Jasmine was redressed and placed in bed how she was found as if to appear asleep. Following this the killer then dragged Samantha's body into the living room by the ankles and placed her onto a cushion so that it supported her hips with her arms raised above her head. It's not known whether she was sexually assaulted or not because from what the killer was to do next, the pathologist was left unable to tell. An attempt to dismember her right leg had been made, and then abandoned in favour of the killer, using a series of jagged downward cuts made possibly with a third heavier knife, having sawn Samantha open from her throat down to below her navel the killer had then cut across her chest and subsequently peeled the chest cavity away with enough force to snap open her ribcage he had then stabbed each of her exposed internal organs in turn inflicting a total of more than 50 stab wounds to samantha before leaving the scene the killer then covered his handiwork with clothing Towels, whatever was available. Not out of shame at all, you understand, or revulsion at the horror that he'd just done, but so that whoever found what he had done would have that extra level of shock when they uncovered it. Can believe that. He then went and posed Jasmine in a similar macabre fashion, so at first glance she would appear as though she had simply slept through it all. Now I'll just let that sink in somewhat, okay? A mother and a four year old child. And I'm not quite done yet. Two detectives from the murder squad who had been among the first on the scene, Detective Sergeant Lionel Barkley and Detective Constable Roger Boydell Smith, the scene manager and exhibits officer respectively, had also attended the post mortem. And when Samantha was placed back together, it struck them that the body was contorted at a peculiar angle. After voicing the suspicions they had to Dr. Hill, he carried out a second post mortem six days after the murder, but was unable to positively confirm their suspicions. At the request of Detective Superintendent Banks, a third post mortem was carried out that same evening by a separate pathologist, Dr. Richard Shepherd, and although his other findings supported the first two examinations, he was able to conclusively confirm the detective's suspicions. Dr. Shepherd estimated that a section of the abdominal wall, measuring about 10 centimeters by 12, he imagined, was missing from Samantha's body, taken away as a trophy by her killer. I told you, the absolute stuff of nightmares, isn't it? Now there are also reports that to look for this grisly detail was suggested to police by clinical psychologist Paul Britton the cracker type figure we met last episode on the show who also by this time had been called in to see in what capacity he could assist the Bissett murder inquiry he was never actually to be given an operational code name it was just always known as the Bissett inquiry he'd come recommended from detectives he was consulting with on another high profile case across London at the time we'll get around to that one at a later date and attended Thames Med Police Station a week after the murders on the 10th of November. Britton was given copies of the crime scene photographs and case files, was taken to 1A Heathfield Terrace where he made copious notes and a rough sketch of the interior and exterior of the scene. By the beginning of December 1993, he had a working profile of the killer, the gist of which we shall come to in a short time. Meanwhile, the bog standard nuts and bolts of any investigation, house to house, crime scene investigation, had failed to throw up anything tangible at that time. No unaccounted for DNA was found on Samantha, on Jasmine, or in the flat either. There were traces of semen found in the flat, but these were a match for Conrad Elham, Samantha's partner, who by that time had been ruled out of the inquiry no blood apart from samantha's and jasmine's was found at the scene either crime scene officer dr kamala disuza concluded in a report that samantha had been attacked in the hallway and had been felled by a stab wound to her neck hence the large pooling of blood there but then a separate attack had taken place at a lower level which was indicated by blood spatters found on a cupboard door opposite There was evidence that the killer had washed his hands both in the kitchen and the bathroom, and a partial bloody shoe print had been found on the kitchen floor amongst the scattered clothing. Eventually, a detailed further search of the flat would reveal other fragments of the same shoe print at different locations, so much so that when these were painstakingly reconstructed, the print was eventually able to be identified as belonging to that of an Adidas Phantom Low basketball boot ultimately ascertained even further as being a size 9. Around a 100 sets of fingerprints were removed from all over the crime scene also, and one by one were eliminated. All of Samantha's regular visitors and friends, Cozy, even her mother and Jack were all compared, and slowly each set had been ruled out. Jasmine had had a fourth birthday party at the flat some three months before the murders, and police were even able to eliminate the prints of all of the children who had attended against the sets they'd lifted. But there was still some more gothic horror with the tale to come, for due to the massive blood loss suffered by Samantha, her skin after her death had developed a leather-like texture, and as such was of insufficient quality to allow her fingerprints to be taken for comparison with those sets removed from the scene. An application was made to the coroner, Sir Montague Levine, for permission to sever one of Samantha's hands and to inflate it with water, which would hydrate it to an extent that it will assist the process. And once permission to do this was granted, Samantha's left hand was removed, was refrigerated overnight, and the following morning, a successful set of fingerprints was able to be lifted from it. Fascinating stuff, eh? But grim as, isn't it? Wow. The other inquiries, interviewing everyone who'd known Samantha, as well as the house-to-house inquiries around the Heathfield Terrace area, had provided police with very little to go on, although there had been a couple of sightings of people who police wished to eliminate. Early inquiries were taken up with an attempt to trace the location and occupants of a yellow former general post office van that had been seen parked almost opposite the steps leading down to samantha's flat on the day of the murder which although it was never traced ultimately was unconnected to the crime there was also a report of a man who'd been seen crossing king john's highway by a passing motorist at about 10:15 pm on the night of the murder and heading towards the vicinity of samantha's flat and reports of what was perhaps the same man who had been seen hanging around the footpath bordering Heathfield Terrace on several consecutive days. There were also reports of a witness out walking his dog along the footpath at the rear of Heathfield Terrace, which can be accessed from neighbouring Bassant Road and Revel Rise through footpaths, who at 10.30pm on the evening of the murder heard the raised voices of a man and a woman coming from the vicinity of Samantha's flat and as we said before, a witness who lived in Revel Rise, Susan Dewar, briefly heard screams at about 3am, as well as a witness who heard two male voices arguing in the vicinity of the flat. Many of Samantha's friends and acquaintances were new age travellers, and tracing and speaking to a number of them was a time-consuming task, but all were to be eliminated, as were several men who Samantha had met and become friendly with as a result of the advertisements that she'd placed in both local and London-wide publications. A number of these had met her on numerous occasions and had even visited the flat, and their prints were subsequently eliminated from the scene. This angle was a large part of the inquiry that police seriously considered at first would provide the key to solving the murders. It was serious enough that papers had been found during the initial search of the property where Samantha had carefully worked out the wording of the advertisements that she was going to place which had gone from the initial Seeking Out Friends advert early in 1993 to by the autumn advertising herself as an escort. She'd received several responses as a result of these and as we said had met up with some of the men who'd responded although for whatever purposes of course we don't know. If she had a course, it wasn't felt that Samantha had seriously embraced sex work, but perhaps was just starting on the fringes of it. As a result, a list of telephone numbers both incoming and outgoing from Samantha's telephone, going back over the course of the previous year had been made, and each number was identified and assigned a corresponding name, who were then interviewed. In several cases, many of these were found to be married men who were discreetly using contact magazines to try and arrange extramarital sexual liaisons, and because there was no sign of forced entry to the flat, plus the close proximity to the front door in which Samantha had been attacked, it was considered at first that her killer may have been one of these, someone she was expecting for a late night rendezvous, and who she had willingly let into her home. Yet this didn't tie in with the door being double locked when Cozy discovered the bodies the following morning. No keys or property were found to be missing from the flat so the intruder had to have gained access and egress another way and closer scrutiny of Cozy's statement was to confirm this. In it he claimed that the rattan blind over the balcony windows was usually fixed permanently in the open position after it had broken and he had tried to repair it unsuccessfully. When it was looked at, the cord holding it was found to have been cut, so causing it to fall in the closed position. Now the balcony, as we've said, was only a short distance above the grass bank at the rear of the terrace, no more than four feet off it, an easy feat for an intruder to scale. Once the killer was inside then, entering through the insecure balcony window, which Samantha often left open to allow cool air to circulate inside, He'd severed the cord to let the blind drop and prevent him being seen by anyone else. So once all friends and acquaintances who knew Samantha had been ruled out of the inquiry as well as men who'd contacted her in response to her classified adverts police were left with the fact that Samantha's killer was a complete stranger to her yet one who seemed to have known her and had targeted her. As I said in the last episode when we were discussing the first attack by the green chain rapist, the indoor rape of Julia just across Winds Common from Samantha's flat in Purrit Road in 1989, there was of course the possibility that choosing a house at random brought with it the risk that any intruder may suddenly be confronted with a hulking brute of a bloke who could batter him into oblivion. No, it seemed that this was a killer who knew that the occupants of the basement flat were an attractive blonde mother and child. True, they had Cozy, as we said, who stayed over often, but not every night. Perhaps the killer had seen Samantha at some point and she'd struck him and he'd began to follow her, thus learning where she lived. If you look at the episode show notes, there's a link to a Google Maps view of Heathfield Terrace and you can see that the sloped grassed area to the side and the rear is screened with trees, ample place for anyone to observe Samantha's flat from, and accessible from two footpaths to the rear, plus only a short fence that separates it from the main road. She may have been of appeal to the killer because Samantha, still adhering to aspects of a former freewheeling lifestyle, reportedly would think nothing of often walking around inside the flat in a state of semi-undress, and would regularly sunbathe topless outside. Conrad Ellum also told police that he and Samantha would often make love in the living room on a cushion on the floor, and if the blind was in the fixed-up position, anyone watching could have seen in and observed this now there is a line of trees between the rear of the block and Revel Rise, so this couldn't be seen clearly from houses on the cul-de-sac, but if someone was lurking in the darkness of those trees, well, different story. This seemed to have been exactly what had gone down and there were three reasons that police considered this. There was the positioning of Samantha's body, a cushion underneath her hips raising them. It was exactly the position that Conrad Ellam told police they would often make love in suggesting that the killer had seen this and it had become an important part of the fantasy that he had enacted. There was also the lack of traces of the killer being in the flat If it was somewhere chosen at random and he didn't know the layout, he would likely have left more traces of himself than a couple of blood-stained footprints. And finally, the fact that Conrad had also told them that a week or so before the murder, Samantha had told him that she'd been going to bed the previous evening, when through the window she'd seen a man looking in, although when he was spotted, he'd run off before she could get a clear description of him. Because of this, Cozy promised to make a point of being around ever more often, although he of course had to work night shifts when his rota came around to it. If someone had targeted Samantha and had watched the flat regularly then, they would have learned that on some nights it was just her and Jasmine in the flat, and that Wednesday night was one of them. It seemed that the killer had been watching from the darkness, until he was sure that Cozy wasn't there that evening, and his own darkness had built up until he decided it was time to strike. As it was decided then that a stranger to her had killed Samantha, Paul Britton had been called in to see what assistance he could give police who were searching for the unknown killer. Within a few weeks, examining the case file and crime scene photographs, he produced a profile along the lines of the following... The killer was male, and no younger than in his mid to late 20s, he'd matured, for want of a better word, into this particular direction. It was very definitely a sexually motivated, deliberate crime, it had not been an opportunistic murder as a result of a burglary. This wasn't his first crime, or his first sexual crime, he would likely have a history of lesser sexual offending, such as voyeurism or indecent exposure. The killer had likely been both a giver and a recipient of violence in his own childhood and would have had a disturbed family life. He would be single, of normal intelligence and able to hold down a job, which if he was working, it would be in a low-level manual role, possibly as part of a group. He'd feel undervalued and unnoticed in his daily life and would clearly have some form of a psychological inability to sustain any meaningful close relationship as a result may have been a user of sex workers or contact magazines. This may possibly have been where he came across Samantha. He would likely have some history of offences against women and possible animal cruelty in his past. He would be a watcher and a stalker, and there were likely to be several other women that he watched across the South London area. He would be a regular user and viewer of pornography, leaning towards the more extreme, including that of sexual mutilation. He wasn't seeking notoriety and fame. It wasn't thought that, like some people, he would try to inject himself into the investigation in some way. He wasn't a sadist, but had gained a significant level of satisfaction from the interaction he'd had with Samantha's body. Now this final point, you might think, come on Paul, of course this guy's a bloody sadist. But it was thought that if so, he would have prolonged Samantha's suffering, kept her alive, although incapacitated, and enjoyed the pain and fear he could see upon her. Maybe he would have threatened Jasmine while she was still alive but couldn't move. Imagine what that would have done to her. Instead, she was almost killed instantly. The real enjoyment for this guy was what he did after she'd been killed. It was also likely that high on adrenaline and excited by what he'd done, after stabbing Samantha, he then abused and killed Jasmine. Samantha was such a devoted mother that nobody could have laid a finger on her daughter had she not been already dead or dying. Some evil creatures on this earth, isn't there? There really, really is. So the likely scenario police were left with was that the killer had watched through the window from a vantage point in the darkness, had seen Samantha prepare for bed, turn out the light and head off to bed, and had then struck. It's unknown exactly what time this was, but at some point after 10pm, lights were seen on in the flat by the motorist driving past, and by the man walking his dog at the rear of the block. The sound of washing up clattering in the bowl at about 11pm was also heard by the occupants of the upstairs flat. This could have been samantha doing this of course before the morning though unlikely because three used coffee cups had been missed and were on the side unit as captured by the scene of crime video this sound was more likely the killer washing his hands having already killed samantha of course it could also have been that she simply missed these cups i mean how many times have you been washing up finished doing it poured the water away and then turn to see a bloody cup or a plate that you've missed, or the rogue missing teaspoon that stays at the bottom of the bowl, eh? What a bastard that is. Happens to me all the time that does. Samantha could equally, though, have been killed in the early hours, as Susan Dewar described hearing a short scream at about 3am and noticed the lights on at 1A Heathfield Terrace. We just don't know. Whatever time it was it appeared that she'd heard a noise and had gotten up to investigate coming face to face with her killer who had struck swiftly. Once Samantha was dead he then washed his heavily blood-stained hands in the bathroom. He must have done this as there was a distinct lack of blood in the bedroom and had then turned his horrific attentions to Jasmine. Following this he had then double locked the front door dragged Samantha into the living room and lay her in front of the fire, posed her body into the position he'd likely witnessed her and Cozy making love in and began his grisly work. The pathologist estimated that it had taken the killer almost an hour to do this. As I said before, you don't even want to think about it, do you? He then removed the section of Samantha's abdomen and placed it onto the sofa once he'd done so. Which would account for the solitary bloodstain on the cushion. Before covering her with clothing and towels from the kitchen cupboard, he'd washed his hands once again. This time in the kitchen sink. Some time after her death, he'd also returned to the bedroom, redressed, and posed Jasmine how she was found. Collecting his gruesome trophy from the sofa, he then left the way he'd entered, over the balcony. Aside from his trophy. There was also the possibility that the killer had taken Polaroids of his handiwork at different stages. You're not sending a film or something like that to Boots, are you? And it would seem likely, because you've got to think, this horror had been the most enjoyable, exciting experience of this maniac's life. So if there was any chance that he could relive that through a photograph in the days long before camera phones, then you'd think he's going to do it, isn't he, Mike? It was probably part of the murder kit that he'd brought with him to the scene. Remember, this was someone who'd brought at least two, possibly three knives with him. And unbelievably, such carnage and horror wasn't widely reported at all. It had a front page feature in the local news shop and newspaper the day after the murders were discovered. But within a week, pretty much all press interest had waned it made barely a ripple in the national press either and you scratch your head a bit there don't you a sad truth though but this was deemed to be the fact that as soon as the press had gotten wind of samantha being possibly on the fringes of sex working they didn't really want to know which is an absolute disgrace really these are two people no matter what murdered within the most truly horrific of circumstances and nothing makes them more or less important than anyone else The full details of what had occurred had of course not been revealed to the press. The closest hint coming from Senior Officer Detective Chief Superintendent Bill Ilsley, who was quoted as saying The person who's committed this terrible murder must have been covered in blood. There must be someone who knows who he is. The injuries were so horrific it would be very difficult to identify whether Samantha was sexually attacked or not. Samantha's parents had not spoken to the press or held a conference, but Conrad Ellum had referring to Samantha's mother having had to identify her and Jasmine at Plumstead police station on the day following discovery of the murders. Conrad Ellam told the assembled press, "I don't think she'll ever recover. I think it was a madman, a psychopath who was possibly local, possibly had been watching the flat they've been brutally murdered by a psychopath and i'm still in a state of shock from what i saw then appealing directly to the killer himself conrad said if you're out there which i think you probably are can you possibly write to me via the police or something and tell me why you did it tell me why you did it because i think you're a very sad person but hints and heartfelt appeals such as that wasn't even enough to capture the interest of the salacious media. Although thankfully, this did mean that no attempts were made to intrude on Margaret and Jack's grief, and that the funeral of Samantha and Jasmine, held a few weeks after the murders, was a largely private affair. Held up in Barn Hill in Dundee, about 30 or so mourners attended a simple church service, before watching as Samantha and Jasmine's coffins were interred together. The officers working on the Bissett Inquiry sent a floral tribute, and the service was attended by Detective Sergeant Alan Jackerman, who reinforced the promise to Samantha's grieving family that the team would do all they could to find who killed her. But by the time the start of nineteen ninety four had come around, everything that could have been actioned had been and the team was still no closer to catching the killer. Men Samantha had met through the classified ads had been traced, interviewed, and eliminated, all known local sex offenders ruled out, and forensic evidence from the crime scene had, at the time, not provided police with any leads. Even any publicity had died away. So now was the time for can you guess? I bet you can. Yep, of course you can. Crime watch reconstruction thanks bbc twats oh and by the way on the subject of crime watch just breaking off a slight tangent for a second the host of fantastic podcast true crime fix steve if you haven't heard it yet then make a beeline to listen to it because it is absolutely great steve i believe submitted an idea to the bbc to resurrect crime watch in its same classic format but hosted by several of us uk true crime podcast hosts The likes of Steve and Adam, Ben, Mike, Mark, and Bethan, Sinead, myself. What would you think to that? Personally, I think it'd be great if it did go ahead. It may mean that I should stop calling the BBC twats, probably. But then, if they resurrected Crime Watch in its proper form, I probably wouldn't need to say that, would I? They can have Strictly Come Master Chef in the jungle on ice bollocks wherever they want. Who gives a shit? Anyway. I digress. Detective Superintendent Banks approached the producers of Crime Watch UK at the turn of 1994, and fought hard to have Samantha and Jasmine's murders as a reconstruction appeal on the February programme. But in truth, the BBC were at first lukewarm to the idea. That's unreal, isn't it? As I said before, I mean, I know the full horrific details of the crime weren't common knowledge, but even the basic fact of a mother and daughter murdered in their own home, why would you even need to consider doing whatever was possible in your power to help get someone responsible for horror like that off the streets if you could? I ask you, I don't understand it at all. But the BBC weren't warm to it in the slightest, until Mickey Banks informed them that a clinical psychologist, Paul Britton, was working with them and had created a profile of the killer. The BBC were only interested if Britain himself would appear on the program to discuss the profile, an idea that he was averse to but relented and eventually agreed to. Therefore, the BBC agreed to film a reconstruction, which was broadcast on the edition of Crime Watch UK that aired on Tuesday the eighth of february nineteen ninety four. It was the lead item on the show, and a link to the edition is available. Red Card 74, you are an absolute superstar still, and it's in the episode show notes this week for you to have a look at. It included an interview with Samantha's mother, Margaret, detailed a number of sightings of people police wished to eliminate, gave details of the yellow GPO van, and included details of Samantha placing adverts in classified ads, but hinted to in a tactful way it didn't go into the full horrific detail concerning the killer's postmortem actions nick ross only alluding to samantha being i quote systematically cut and even when him saying that it sounds as chilling as anything it really does but the reconstruction did also reveal publicly for the first time that jasmine had also been sexually assaulted Paul Britton did appear on the show, and while some details of the profile do flash up on screen as part of the reconstruction, Britton went further, suggesting that the killer may even possibly try to contact the studio to speak to him if he was watching. In the update part of the show, that was always screened an hour or so after the main broadcast, Britton once again reinforced this, and in almost a direct appeal to the killer himself, he told Nick Ross... I don't know his name, I don't know his address, but I do understand some aspects of the way he feels. I understand the contentment and excitement that he got from the way he left both Samantha and Jasmine. Sometimes he may recognise that what he's done just can't go on, and I would like him to telephone me and tell me about it. Now, needless to say, the killer didn't call. But the Crime Watch appeal didn't really advance the inquiry any further either reportedly there were some names suggested by the public and more people came forward who'd answered some of samantha's classified adverts but the inquiry didn't move anything forward as a result so once again police were left to re-trawl through the inquiries they'd already made to ensure that nothing had been missed the visits to traveler camps to speak to people who may have known samantha had to start all over again as did inquiries to try and trace the source of the Adidas phantom Low trainer. As February turned into March, pressure mounted to scale down the operation, as officers were needed elsewhere, as we've said countless times on the show, crime doesn't wait about, does it? And by May 1994, the investigating team had been cut from the initial 25 members to just 8 but it was in May 1994 that police got the breakthrough that they needed as a result of scrutinising the actions that had already been performed. Something that had always stuck with the investigating officers was the remarkable fact that every single fingerprint lifted from the crime scene had been eliminated from the inquiry. That's something that almost never happens at crime scenes. There's always a rogue couple that can never be identified. Plus they knew from findings at the Bissett crime scene that the killer had twice washed his hands. It stood to reason then that in a location he may have known the layout of, but had never actually been in before, there was a strong possibility that he would have inadvertently touched something. With this in mind, following the lack of advancements of the inquiry following the Crime Watch UK broadcast, detective superintendent banks had requested a complete re-examination of all fingerprints that had been lifted from the crime scene now perhaps i'm preaching to the choir a bit here i don't mean to of course but standard procedure is that when a fingerprint has been lifted they are then checked by an expert who will compare them to the prints of known offenders in search of a match once they've been examined if a potential match is found this is then double checked by a separate independent expert before any result is recorded and it goes without saying that each set of fingerprints is unique no two sets of prints can be identical this is what had been done initially in the Bissett inquiry except that three of the prints it transpired had been misidentified on the 20th of May 1994 Detective Superintendent Banks held a team briefing at the Thames Mead offices, where he told the remaining investigators on the inquiry that, following a meeting he'd just held with the head of the fingerprint services responsible for those lifted at the Bissett crime scene, that there was a problem, shall we say, with the results. It appeared that there had been some confusion over some of the fingerprints thought to belong to Samantha, and that some had actually been misidentified. Three sets of prints, a set lifted from the outside balcony, a set lifted from the door frame to the bedroom where Jasmine was found, and a set from her cot, which were all at first identified as belonging to Samantha, actually didn't. Detective Superintendent Banks is quoted in Alan Jackerman's book as saying, I am told the patterns were so similar as to make identification difficult, and it was assumed without a proper double check that they belonged to Samantha they do not belong to Samantha. Now by all accounts, unusually, the prints were incredibly similar, and it was only under the closest scrutiny that they were found to be differences, on sets of prints lifted from the balcony, the doorframe, and Jasmine's cot. These three separate sets of prints belonged to an individual, a local man, who was already known to police because he had a previous criminal record. He hadn't surfaced as someone known to Samantha during the investigation, nor in the identification of any of the men who were known to have contacted her through the classified adverts. But the prints were double-checked and confirmed to belong to him. The card on the individual concerned was immediately retrieved from Plumstead Police Station and fast-tracked to the Thames incident room where investigators looked at the photograph of the man they now believed strongly could be the killer that they were seeking one of the civilian staff attached to the inquiry an experienced indexer named pamela robinson who had worked on several inquiries before took one look at the photograph and said that's the green chain rapist it's an absolute ringer for the photo fit Pamela had been part of the civilian staff on Operation Eccleston almost two years before and had committed the artist's impression to memory. When the appeal poster for the man wanted in connection with the green chain rapes was fetched and compared to the photograph of the suspect, everyone looking at it agreed that it was indeed a remarkable uncanny likeness. Did they now possibly have a suspected killer who had started out as a multiple rapist. Now murders such have been described here, I'm sure you'll agree, horror such as this is bad enough happening just once. It's awful, isn't it? The real stuff of nightmares. I know I've said that a ruck times through the episode, but it really is, isn't it? What if I told you that this crime was the second time an attractive blonde young mother in London had been butchered in a savage bloody attack again in the presence of a child although unlike jasmine the child in this particular case had been spared just 16 months and 12 miles apart but police already had that killer so they were sure he was on remand awaiting trial so i ask you what are the chances of two such monsters 12 miles apart well, next episode, we shall find out, as with that, it brings an end to the second part of the Maniac arc here on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. This case, the case in this episode, the murders of Samantha and Jasmine Bissett, is one of the most disturbing and heartbreaking crimes I've ever not just featured on the show, but have ever studied in all of the years I've been a true crime enthusiast. Since I first learned of it many years ago now, it's been one I've always found chilling and absolutely unforgettable and the thing responsible, certainly one of the most evil forces that I've ever learned of who we shall come to meet soon through the ark. I find it tragic and it still makes me bitter that a mother and child who lost their lives in such horror are still to this day almost forgotten names. There were two people and they certainly deserve to be remembered which I hope I've gone some way here to ensuring that they now are. I know the macabre circumstances of their deaths will forever be associated with them. It's hard not to do that and understandable if it is. But please try and remember them first and foremost as how I've tried to describe them here. The happy little girl and the devoted mother that they were. A picture of both Samantha and Jasmine is now up on the show's Instagram page that examples this perfectly and I hope will help you to do so. I'm sure there are several listeners who are already familiar with the case featured within the Ark this series. I thought that even from the previous episode. But if it's one that you haven't come across before, then I do warn you, we're not done with the horror and tragedy yet in this tale. Not by a long shot. Do you see now why I opted for When the Devil Walked in Plumstead as an appropriate title? It was a word that I just couldn't get past. I just couldn't think of anything else to call it. So I shall wrap up here now and continue with the next bit. I thank you all so much for joining me today. I know it's been a disturbing one to cover, but as ever here on the show, it really is all or nothing, and it's a tale far too complex for anything but a multi-parter. So I hope you can join me for the next episode. Nothing else remains for me to say except that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, Wishing you guys safe times, extra so right now. Stay safe and stay in please guys. And I shall speak to you all very soon. Take care and goodbye for now.